Hello and welcome back to ProfCast, the new series from WXVU V891 The Roar, Villanova Radio, where we are sitting down with our incredible Villanova professors and learning more about their work and research experience. Today, I am thrilled to have in the station with me Dr. Heidi Rose, who is the chairperson and Professor of Performance Studies in the Communications Department. Dr. Rose, welcome. Thank you so much, Allison. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. So let's dive right into the questions. We are going to take it back and start with, where did you complete your PhD and what was your PhD thesis about? I went to Arizona State University and I will tell you that I it was a surprise to me to go to ASU. I discovered it in my master's program and met a professor when I went to my first National Communication Association conference, met this professor who told me about a new PhD program at ASU in the department, then Department of Communication, now it's a school. And uh, I sort of fell in love with him and it was exactly what I wanted. And he persuaded me that being part of a new PhD program would be really beneficial. And he was absolutely right. And so I followed him there to Phoenix and I was there for, uh, for four years. Wow. And yeah, it was uh, it was a great experience. It was an interdisciplinary PhD in communication that allowed me to pursue performance studies, but also areas of intercultural communication, which I was also very interested in. And I was very fortunate to dive into my dissertation work as soon as I started, because I discovered that there was a very strong. Um, disability student services department there. Mm -hmm. And part of that was a very strong service um, dedicated to deaf and hard of hearing students. I had no background in any of that, but in the very first class that I was teaching as a, as a grad assistant, uh, I was teaching a performance of literature class. And in my very first semester, there was a student in there who was um, deaf and she had an interpreter in the class with her. And so I was introduced to this whole world that I had known of peripherally, but wasn't uh, really involved in. And so for me, my profound loves always have been performance and culture and literature and language. And so that all coalesced in the study of what I discovered was original uh, poetry and narrative created in ASL and many other sign languages around the world as well, but I was focused on ASL. So I had no idea that there was original work that was tied to particular artists, authors. Uh, and at the time they were all preserved on video. Then it became DVD. Now it's all digital, <laughs> but, but it, um, it sparked my interests. It, it brought together all the things that I love. And so at the time there was very little work. There was really very little research done on ASL poetry. It was just starting. It was sort of the birth of it. And uh, and so I kind of dove in and I became really close with uh, a couple of interpreters at ASU and then all of these deaf and hard of hearing students who were clamoring for more opportunities to dive into the culture and the language. And so we created a, uh, a co-curricular ensemble, studied the poetry and the narrative, did performances, and then that all became part of my dissertation. Wow. You really found the perfect niche to combine all your interests. And there was no way I could have predicted it. <laughs> That's amazing. So ultimately, what was the topic of your PhD thesis? So I, in all the research that I did, I found that while since around 
19, it started in 1960, concrete research being done to show that ASL and all signed languages are, you know, quote unquote, legit languages mm-hmm. like any other. Right. Not some random system of gestures. So I knew there was this whole body of work less on ling- uh, literary qualities of the poetry and stories. So in, a- in deaf culture, there's a huge tradition of storytelling and, and, and sign play, right? So jokes and things that kids develop and like in, you know, in, in all uh, right, hearing right. cultures, right? With spoken and written languages and, and lots that's, that are part of what we might call an oral tradition. We're saying oral because it's spoken. In deaf culture, it would be, you know, a sign tradition, but where something is not preserved and not necessarily tied to a particular author, but it's jokes and stories and lore that, you know, that that every generation knows. Mm-hmm. So there was work on that, uh, but there wasn't a whole lot on, on actual literary qualities in the poetry and the narrative. And that's sort of my jam. And, that, and I connected with some people at Gallaudet University who were also doing a similar thing, but from the English department. So they were like literature people, and I was sort of a literature and performance person. And so we started, um, you know, helping each other, working with each other. I found I was also very lucky because at University of Arizona, there was a deaf professor in the linguistics department who uh, is uh, very famous at the time, storyteller. So he would perf- he was a performer, but he was also a linguistics professor, and he agreed to serve on my committee. And so my dissertation was uh, basically a study of the literary qualities, features, I called them stylistic features in ASL poetry and narrative. And I selected uh, four or five artists whose work I really appreciated and and who were known nationally and their work differed enough that I felt I could do a, a decent comparison and contrast. So I interviewed them and I analyzed their works. And then what was pretty cool was my, my students, this, little, this ensemble that we had at the university, uh, performed their works so they could watch an artist and see how they performed their work that was, you know, that was sort of published like on a, on video. Mm-hmm. And then they took those pieces and they performed them themselves. And so that helped me uh, isolate, you know, what are the, what are these qualities? What is, what is um, the equivalent of metaphor? What's the equivalent of alliteration? What's the equivalent of, or, or something different? You know, what are qualities that are literary that, are unique to sign that would be different if you were doing uh, poetry on the page. That's fascinating. So looking back towards kind of your inspirations and your influences, what research did your advisor or the people who were on your committee do? (laughs) So my two primary advisors, whom I love dearly, uh, had nothing to do with ASL. Oh, wow. And so for they were tremendously supportive of me, but because they were they were communication and performance studies people. Mm-hmm. But uh, they want my my advisor, Kristen Valentine, did a lot of work on. Um, it's really funny. Okay, so we're, I'm aging myself <laughs> strongly here. But when a lot of her publications, like in the 1980s, were uh, around this this. Um, kind of performance for awareness and social change and education that at the time it was called trigger scripting. So it's using the word trigger in in an, a way that still makes sense to us now, but in a way that doesn't 
uh, trigger something bad. You know, the idea was that the trigger was how the performance itself could trigger questions, um, opening hmm. a dialogue, uh, creating space to uh, let an audience ask questions or engage a topic that they might have felt uncomfortable with or scared of or never knew anything about. And so the the use of performance to engage an audience to make education, awareness, and change. And she did a lot of, of um, ethnography work in different communities and uh, helped develop the idea around how you structure these scripts because it's a kind of performance that's different from other types of performance work. So so she she did a lot of publishing in that area, and, and I learned quite a bit from her that I brought with me to Villanova. Uh, but she and my other main advisor, Fred Corey, uh, appreciated an opportunity for them to learn about deaf culture, to learn about ASL, to learn about the applications of the theory that they know and the the, the topics that they studied, but to apply, help apply it to this world that they didn't really know very much about. So that's why Sam Sapala, who was the linguistics professor at uh, University of Arizona, he was much, much needed because he could provide the... Um, the deaf studies and deaf culture and ASL, uh, you know, um, knowledge and expertise. And he was also, I, I should say this too, he was the only deaf member of the committee. And I worked with deaf and hard of hearing students at ASU, but Fred and Kristen are hearing people. And again, this was brand new to them. And one of the, one of the big considerations that I had moving into this whole area of research was, um, I'm a hearing person. I don't have deaf family members. Mm -hmm. I don't have a deaf uh, romantic partner, which is how a lot of hearing people get involved, <laughs> frankly. And uh, do I have a right to be here? Mm. Can I do this? And I went when I went to meet Sam uh, in in his office in Tucson, and I said I, I knew a little bit. You know, I was starting to learn sign, and um, and I said, uh, can I do this? If you say yes, would you be on my committee? But really, can I do this? Is this cool? And he was incredibly generous and said, uh, look, the reality is that as a deaf person, I will have insights and perspectives and knowledge that there's no way you can ever have. But as a hearing person with the background that you have and the interests that you have, you can bring insights and perspectives that I won't have. Hmm. And we work together in a place of mutual respect and dialogue. And so it was... It was uh, very heartening, and uh, I was grateful because it's it was something that fascinated me tremendously. So, over those couple of years, I uh, I was able to get funding from Arizona State to take some intensive, immersive ASL classes at Gallaudet. Mm -hmm. So I spent several weeks, one summer, um, in DC, and and continued you know learning from my students, and um, and then I I do remember <laughs> I do remember Kristen, my advisor. Uh, reading some of my chapters as they would come to her and just sort of saying, makes sense to me. <laughs> this is great. And and uh, so I, I think I was lucky that, in some ways lucky that I was charting some new territory and they were supportive of that. Yeah, it sounds you know? like you had a great team supporting you. Yep. Um, I'd love to hear a little more about your experience at Gallaudet, actually. And maybe if you could describe for people who might not know what Gallaudet is. Definitely. And kind of what you what you learn from your time there. It's the it is the only federally funded university for deaf and hard of hearing students in the world, uh, 
at it started in 1864. Abraham Lincoln signed the charter, and uh, and it's named after the um, Thomas Gallaudet and Edward Gallaudet were. I think it's a uh oh testing my history now. <laughs> I believe it's a father and son who were. Uh, really influential in changing deaf education in this country because th uh, they studied with some French sign language teachers and deaf educators in France. And they uh, brought the French methods to the States and really solidified deaf education that would, that would actually help deaf kids learn through sign language as opposed to trying to make them into hearing people who could speak and um, when they you know, when they can't mm -hmm. or shouldn't have to be forced. So um, so Gallaudet's named after them, the university, and uh, it thrives. It's right in the heart of D.C. It is an immersive um, experience. It's, it's really uh, a sign-only place. So when you come there, there are plenty of hearing people who teach there, uh, but they must sign. They must learn ASL as a second language. And they must use ASL in the classroom and in the surroundings. And um, so it's really fascinating. When you go visit, uh, They, uh, you feel like you're in another world if you're a hearing person. And, you know, I think one of the, uh, one of the surprising experiences for hearing people when they're around a, a fully deaf community is thinking, oh, there's going to be no sound. But there's actually lots of sound because... Uh, People who are deaf will will involuntarily or voluntarily vocalize often, uh, you know, as emphasis or as uh, in in laughter or mm -hmm. we know whatever. So there's 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 definitely sound, and they also will completely rock out a bar or in any area where there's <laughs> dancing because they they uh, they feel the vibrations in bass, mm -hmm. and so you have to wear ear. You really need to wear like, <laughs> like headphones, like we are wearing right now. You would want to wear in a bar if there's um, a, a whole room full of deaf people because it's so incredibly loud because uh, they dance to the vibrations. So, yeah, it was a great experience to be there. And I, I learned a ton. And I was so lucky because a couple of the deaf poets whom I had been studying uh, were still teaching there. And so I could actually go and interview them and meet with them. Oh, that's awesome. It was really wonderful. That is great. So one more question about your PhD before I move into the Villanova side of things. Can you touch on how your PhD experience shaped you, maybe as an educator, as a person, as a student, all of those things? I think part of why I love performance always since, you know, I was 12 is that it gives me a sense of the other. So for me, engaging in the deaf community and learning about ASL poetry and, and immersing myself in that world, um, it just continued to uh, shape my the, the value, the tremendous value that I have in understanding something about the experience of someone who is not like me. And so learning ASL actually, so it definitely shaped, it shaped my perspective as a human being it shaped my perspective as an educator for sure because this is one of the things that I love in teaching is to help students develop that sense of other. So we have to do so much to understand ourselves and and there's much to gain from deeper understanding of ourselves, but we learn so much about ourselves through the understanding of others and gaining experience of others. So that was a huge thing. And, and also recognizing that uh, I think as a graduate student, uh, 
you often think, oh no, how can I ever come up with an original idea? Has it all been done? <laughs> you know, and whenever I teach research here or working with students thinking about graduate school or just, or really any kind of creativity, like how can you come up with something new? And so that experience um, certainly showed me that, yes, I could. And it was, you know, that was very cool. And the, oh shoot, there was something else I wanted to say about the, oh, it'll come to me. <laughs> it'll come back but there was something else about ASL oh I know that it's it's a visual spatial language mm -hmm. right so that's all well and good okay fine you use your hands you use your face but it's also I've always been fascinated by how language and thought are interconnected and I do feel that when when I was at my best in ASL never fluent but pretty darn conversational my mind would work differently. I would put thoughts together differently. And that, and a lot of it is because of that spatial nature, because there are ways of expressing an idea in sign that's truly different from expressing the same idea in English, mm -hmm. uh, because English is linear and sign ASL is spatial. So, so the very crafting of thought comes out differently. And that I think was one of my biggest uh, like aha moments. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I have taken two semesters of ASL now, and it's so interesting how much you can communicate with, like, the expression on your face or how much you emphasize a particular sign. It gives the sign a totally different meaning, and that's just not how it works when you're speaking English. So definitely fascinating. Okay, so moving on here, how did you end up coming to Villanova? Well, the quickest response to that is it was my second interview. Mm-hmm. And my first job offer. Wow. <laughs> so I was, I was thrilled. Uh, I was terrified I wasn't going to get a job. Finishing my dissertation, uh, there actually were not very many full-time tenure-track positions open in the areas of communication that I was really looking for. Mm -hmm. So I actually didn't go on the job market when I first finished. I stayed at ASU for a year. They were gracious enough to hire me to teach a few classes, and I was still working with the ASL group. So I stayed for a year. That was a very good decision because then there were some jobs. So, um, yeah, so I, I had my first interview. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is bizarre. In sending out a bunch of applications, I was looking for performance studies. I was looking for in or near a big city, and I'm looking for, you know, a tenure-track line. And uh, I got three interviews lined up, all of them at Catholic colleges. Hmm. I don't know why. It just was sort of a funny coincidence. And so I had my first one at DePaul University in Chicago, and I bombed. I was terrible. <laughs> and I understood why I was bad. And then I went, okay, now I'm learning. And so then the second one was at Villanova, and it went much better. And, uh, and I got the offer, and I was so happy because um, – Philly was a city I hadn't explored. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved the idea of Villanova. Reminded me of Northwestern, where I went to undergrad, just in being near a big city, but its own like lovely oasis. And um, and then they wanted me to teach performance studies, and really even more, they wanted me to develop a curriculum in performance studies, which they hadn't had before. So I couldn't have been happier. Wow. So at Villanova, what classes have you taught? Do you teach? And which is your favorite, and why? I know. That's a hard question. Uh, so before I started doing some administrative work, I taught a wide range. I would teach all the performance classes that we developed. So theories of performance studies, performance of literature, performance for social change, performance art. Those were kind of the, the main ones. Mm -hmm. And then also qualitative research, 
senior capstone. Uh, and, and then before we hired faculty to do uh, intercultural communication as their specialization in earlier years, I also taught intercultural communication. So, so a pretty wide range. And, and then for a while, I w- would teach classes in the honors program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, ha, 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 favorite, I would say before honors stopped offering the interdisciplinary humanities program, that was my f- favorite, favorite thing to be part of. I loved it, and I'm sad that they ended it. And so all of you listening, you probably have no idea what it is because it actually ended in 20. I think 20, I think the fall of 2020 was the last class that was offered. So it's over and done, but it was great because it was interdisciplinary between philosophy and theology and, um, and literature. So I taught, and I taught the literature sort of as performance. So that was cool. But, uh, in the, in the comm department, I love teaching all the performance classes for sure. I think that. I think one of the joys that I have in performance classes is uh, opening students up who may not have had performance experience. So it's wonderful when students come in saying, yes, I want, I love theater and I want to know more about performance studies and do more with that. And that's um, a joy, a absolute joy. Uh, and someone coming in saying, well, I need this fine arts credit or, well, I kind of liked performance in seventh grade, but then I got involved in sports and I never had a chance to really do more with it. But this is kind of fun. And then and just opening them up to learning more about themselves and their own capabilities and how magical performance can be and how, what it feels like to touch an audience in that live moment. Uh, nothing excites me more than that. And to see the spark in them and to discover their own power. I think there's tremendous power in the in the vulnerability and in the relationship that can develop between performer and audience. And you just don't get that online. You don't get that in film. You, it's a different, I'm equally wonderful, but different, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so turning students onto that is why I love teaching all the performance classes for sure. That's awesome. That's so great. Uh, now shifting gears a little bit to more administrative stuff. What has your experience been as chairperson of the com- department? So, uh, a little, um, I guess insider info <laughs> when when a faculty member becomes chair they're usually told that it's like the worst job in the university <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think it's because it's kind of a middle management position you're 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 sort of both well you're 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 the face of the department you're kind of the leader of the department but you're also on equal footing with all your colleagues still and you're that you've got the closest um, direct connection to all the students, but then you're also answering to the dean and the provost and all of those folks. Mm. So you might want to make all the decision, the decisions, but you can't make all the decisions because you have the <laughs> dean and the provost and president and all of them. So, right. so it's um, it's been a great experience. I've loved having a chance to get to know students outside of my own classes on a much more profound level. I've loved being able to initiate all these new programs and um, I've loved uh, having a vision of where the department could go and then having a chance to bring some of those ideas into fruition, which certainly happens as a faculty member as well. But there is a way here where I'm able to uh, have that be that that kind of linchpin between the dean's office and 
our faculty, mm-hmm. you know, and then if if we have an idea, we can say, hey, let's make this happen. So so that's been great. Yeah. Very good learning experience. On that note, can you touch on something that you've accomplished as chair that you're maybe most proud of and then something that you think still needs to be improved within the department? One thing that has been great, and again, a bit serendipitous, is we've done a lot of hiring. Hmm. In my six years as chair, we have nine new full-time faculty wow. members. Wow. That's about a, that's more than a third of the department. So I've actually loved that whole process. I've loved being able to uh, be part of those searches and, uh, and, and welcome new faculty members and help get them uh, enculturated and help them and mentor them. And, you know, I've loved that. Just we, it's a wonderful, wonderful group of faculty. So super excited for all, for what I've been able to contribute to that. And, um, we started a peer mentorship program, which has been really wonderful, where students are both functioning to, as outs, like kind of ambassadors to the program, but then also internally uh, working with new majors, being an addition to the faculty advisors, and and so that peer mentorship we just didn't have that as a as a, a formally organized um, entity prior to the last few years. So I'm glad I'm really proud of that. Uh, frankly. I think the other thing I'm proud of is whatever I was able to contribute to getting us through the pandemic. <laughs> and that was that was a lot. So that was that was a lot. An area that I still think we need to improve is um, creating a meaningful and comfortable hangout space for our students <laughs> in Gary Hall. <laughs> so I, I keep I keep pushing uh, the higher administration to let us take the existing alumni events room and turning it into a holy grounds and making it more of a like knock down some walls and make it a hangout space and I think that it's needed it's needed for not just art major but for the whole building you know we have the honors program and we've got GIS and we've got uh, other uh, you know other programs moving in and career services is there and and office of education abroad and we all like want to see each other and we don't have a hangout space and uh, it's a it's a big building it draws a lot of students and so that's one thing that I I wish I had see that's one of the things that I have a vision for (laughs) I have no power over (laughs) but I hope it I hope that happens at some point I hope it happens too that'd be cool to have a a community space in Gary definitely so something I would love to hear you discuss is your work with the new disability and deaf studies minor so can you talk about how it came to be what the minor looks like and why you think it's an important addition to Villanova's course offerings definitely uh so back when I first came to Villanova, fresh out of the, the PhD and deep in all this ASL poetry research, I encouraged uh, there to be ASL classes here. And that's a long time ago now. Mm-hmm. And the honors program at the time was super supportive and interested in that. And so we offered ASL classes. It was only a one-level class. It was an elective, a pure elective that anybody could take, not mm-hmm. only in honors. And that was offered for several years. And then uh, things sort of shifted and changed and not as much interest at the administrative level. But then when Krista Bialka started in the education and counseling department, she had an interest in disability studies. And there have been some other faculty here and there who have had an interest in disability studies. No one else specifically with deaf studies. But uh, Krista and I started talking a few years ago, kind of at the same time that there was a student group who uh, petitioned to start an ASL club. And then as a result of that ASL club, 
they looked at each other and said, well, heck, why are there no ASL classes? There are classes offered at many of the area colleges and universities, but not here. So they went and talked with Father Peter, who said, absolutely. And then he spoke with Dean Adele Lindenmeyer, who then came to me saying, what can we do? And so <laughs> and so we all you know, put our heads together and uh, developed the ASL curriculum, at least having two levels of the classes, which was happening around the same time as Krista Bialko was really starting to develop the idea for the minor. And, and she and I met and agreed that really there should be two separate tracks to this minor. It's, a, it's disability studies on one and deaf studies on the other. Lots of connections between the two, but deafness is such a different, it's really a different entity in so many ways because it's language-based. So other um, identities that are tied to certain disabilities don't necessarily don't really don't have the language difference mm -hmm. uh, as much as other kinds of differences and so because of that there are there's just there's different literature there's different needs there are different experiences and so keeping them separate made sense um, and so really again serendipitous uh, she worked on this proposal I consulted on the deaf part of it and then it uh, it got approved and we were able to launch it and then along the same at along the same time, uh, we were able to get the ASL, um, the second level of ASL to count as a disability, not a disability, a diversity credit, so a uh, diversity one. And then I started pushing a little bit more to reintroduce the idea of having it count for the language. If we're introducing the minor, if we're increasing these classes, there's evidence from across this country and world that it, it fulfills foreign language or world language requirements at so many different schools, and it's being offered more in high schools. Mm -hmm. So there are the high school kids, hearing kids who are learning ASL who then come to college and say, wait, why can't I keep doing this? So it was the, it's timing. You know, the timing was the timing was right. And I think it's very, very important for for all sorts of ways for hearing people to understand the, the range and depth and possibilities of language, um, how to understand culture, how we understand our bodies, how we understand identities with, you know, in the body. You know, something we don't think about in the hearing world, in fact, we don't even think of us as being in a hearing world, but if you're deaf, you very much feel like that small, small, isolated, often isolated minority in this larger hearing world. Um, and Deaf kids and adults have faced tremendous discrimination over the years, uh, decades and decades. Uh, opportunities have been denied to deaf people. It's, it was much worse in the past, but it continues to today. There uh, is a, a much smaller percentage of deaf kids who go to college, um, any other advanced degrees, uh, even being able to truly pursue their potential. Uh, and what is really interesting is understanding consequences of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So it's complicated. Uh, in many ways, the ADA did great things, right? Uh, on one level, it provided access and accommodation for people with all sorts of disabilities, right? That's a good thing. Mainstreaming education, making sure that, that kids who 
our, our deaf or who face other kinds of disabilities are in classrooms and, and receive the same education as everybody else. So that's all good on one level. But with deaf children who are linguistically different, right? The language that comes naturally to a deaf child is sign language, not a spoken written language. And so the, the deaf uh, residential schools that were incredibly popular for many, many years, they were, they were boarding schools that started in the 19th century and through the 20th century, uh, kids would go to boarding schools and they would often be forced to learn English to speak and lip read and of course learn reading and writing uh, in the classroom. But then when they were with each other, they could sign and they were free to sign. And so ASL thrived and they had their, their, their socialization and they were uh, not feeling quite so isolated. But with mainstreaming, that brought deaf kids into hearing classrooms and you might be the only deaf child in the class. And then you might have an interpreter. Well, you will have an interpreter in there to help with understanding. And there might be some kind of bilingual uh, access going on. But by and large, the deaf kid is going to be isolated. And very rarely are the hearing children in there going to be learning sign language. So that uh, didn't necessarily do a lot to help deaf kids thrive. Um, and then on the at the same time, there's a tension in the popularity of ASL in the hearing world. So, so many high schools are offering ASL as a, as a language option or as some kind of a free elective. And as you all know, ASL was offered as an elective here. And that's a, it's good because it, it creates awareness. It creates, uh, new understanding for hearing people of what it means to learn a language that's visual and spatial and to understand something about the deaf experience. But at the same time, for deaf people, ASL was the one precious thing that was all their own, right? It was something that wasn't part of the hearing world at all. It was theirs. And now it's become a cool thing for hearing people to do where for the deaf community, it is their language lifeline. It's not some cool thing to do. So that has created some tensions as well. And I'm the, the way that I look at it, at, to make it the most positive it can be and to make it the most um, truly bilingual, bicultural, integrated experience here at Villanova is to insist that we have, uh, we have instructors who are deaf, who are either native signers or who are uh, bilingual and bicultural who learn, who have ASL as, uh, as a second language to English, but that we're not hiring hearing adults who are fluent in sign. Uh, if, because we need to be creating opportunities for deaf people, uh, to teach the language that is, you know, that is, that belongs to them. So I think in that way, if we can provide opportunity for more deaf instructors and, and hopefully build that and get some full-time people in, 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 as ASL grows, then I can see that that will be, um, you know, that will certainly be a positive, but it's important for Villanova students to understand the, this history, you know, this, this history of isolation and discrimination and complexity, uh, about, um, about the deaf experience in this country. So for people interested in the minor, can you maybe touch a little bit on what classes are involved? It's interdisciplinary. So it works a little bit like, uh, like GWS. So 
you take there are there are foundational courses there's an intro to deaf studies there's an intro to disability studies that you have to take mm-hmm. but then there are there are courses from a number of different departments across the college of arts and sciences that will you know that will count so um so right now i'm teaching performance for social change and that is one of the electives that students can take because the the way of understanding how um performance we're touching on a bunch of different identity experiences and so touching on you know introducing a little bit about deafness and and disability too so there are a lot of other really cool courses in philosophy in um in psychology in english you know a lot of a lot of other courses that people can choose from and uh i think it's and i think it's a 15 credit minor I'm pretty sure it's 15 credits. So, and then ASL is required in the deaf studies minor, but it's an option in the disability studies minor. All right. And then maybe any words of encouragement for students who might be interested, but perhaps a little nervous to explore ASL and disability studies? Uh, well, for the ASL part, I think, I think some students come in nervous because it's so radically different. It's so radically different, mm-hmm. a way, different way of expressing yourself. And, uh, but I think for some people who have trouble Maybe trouble is too strong a word. For some people who think, oh, I'm not very good with languages, learning any second or third language has always been challenging. For In an interesting way, sometimes ASL uh, uses a part of the brain that where they find it um, enriching and easier for some reason. So I would say jump in, have fun. There are um, the, the two instructors that we have right now are both fabulous and they love what they do. And so I think if you go in, you know, go in with that why are you here? You are here to push your boundaries, to take some risks intellectually and creatively. And it's, um, it's just, a, a, it'll open your eyes to a wonderful new world. Absolutely. All right. Just a few more questions left for you here. So how are you involved in the communications department outside of teaching in the classroom? And what's your favorite project you have worked on at Villanova? Hmm. Uh, I think uh, being able to begin our summer study abroad program in Greece, that has to be a major highlight. It's still teaching, but it's not teaching in the classroom. It's uh, um, my colleague Susan Mackey Callis and I got this idea uh, again a long time ago because we had so many students who were studying overseas and they, it was harder in the like early 2000s, late 90s. It was harder to get comm credits for the major and we wanted to encourage our students to study abroad. So uh, so she happens to be married to a man who was born in Athens and had spent a lot of time in Greece with her husband's family. And so we started talking and realized that, you know, the, the roots of the communication discipline really are in classical ancient Greece, 5th century BCE Athens with mm-hmm. rhetoric and, and theater, poetry, performance, oratory, all of that. So... So we developed this uh, amazing, just about a six-week, six-credit program that runs every summer. And um, I've been so lucky to teach in it about 10 or 11 times uh, over 20-some years. And uh, so we take turns, unfortunately. <laughs> we can't go. We can't go every year. But, but yeah, that's been my favorite, my favorite experience. Um, and, and again, a good example of, like, you get an idea and then you can kind of make it happen, you know. So it's open to... Uh, not only communication majors, but we we typically get a lot of comm majors taking it. And so I think that's been my favorite project, both within the department and outside. And then the other favorite, which happened, again, because of what I was given 
the opportunity to do when I started here is um, beginning performance studies in the classroom also connected to how I was trained in my PhD program, which was to use performance outside the classroom for awareness and education and change. So um, the the work that I did with students early on led to new student orientation uh, developing or what like the performance work that's done during during new student orientation is a direct connection to all that that I was able to start a oh, long wow. time ago. Yeah, I did not know that. So there used to be one that was that that I did up until like 2013. It was um, I kind of loosely called it the sex, drugs, and rock and roll piece that touched on a lot of those issues around sexual decision making and and you know and alcohol and drug use and things like that. But um, they the orientation folks decided to address that in a different way. Mm-hmm. But we did that for a long time. But the um, but the diversity performance, the touch of diversity, that grew out of using performance for the, in in this way that mm. that did not exist before so that's i feel very proud of um being able to introduce those possibilities yeah that's amazing so i have one final question for you here and i hate to ask it but communications has a bit of a bad reputation for being a quote-unquote easy major or a quote-unquote useless major i'd love to hear you respond to these claims and talk about the skills that the comm department equips its majors with I think maybe the first thing to consider is that skills are definitely a real thing, but that it's so much more than a skill. Uh, it's a it's a perspective. It's a perspective on the world, mm. and by that I mean, uh, simply put, communication shapes our perceptions. Communication shapes our perceptions of the world we're in. The uh, our perceptions of ourselves, our perceptions of each other, uh, communication shapes relationships. Communication, through communication, we make meaning. I mean, there is no other way that we make meaning. It is through communication. So it's all around us, and because it's all around us, I we take it for granted. But it literally shapes our lives, and we cannot live without it. So, with that, that that. Uh, is a huge responsibility. What do we do with, what do we do with this? How do we not take it for granted? How do we recognize the power that we have to shape meaning, to shape messages, to understand what it means to relate to others, uh, both one-on-one and uh, in larger spaces, whether live or mediated? Uh, so I think we. I think that in studying communication, you recognize that you cannot take it lightly, that it does, uh, it, it is, it is, um, we, we use this phrase all the time in, um, you know, in courses that it is constitutive, like it, it constitutes our reality and we, uh, we need it more than ever. I, I think it's not um, hyperbolic to say that our future depends on the nature of our communication with each other. And the department uh, and this major helps you understand that and helps you maximize your own potential to be an ethical and an eloquent, uh, thoughtful, powerful communicator. 
Wow. I think that is a great note to end on. So, Dr. Rose, thank you so much for joining us on ProfCast today. Thanks for inviting me. It has been been really fun. Great to hear from you. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of WXVU Villanova's ProfCast. Be sure to stay tuned for more episodes. Thank you.